this is Chase Keaton. And welcome to Versus Labs. So today we've got a special podcast for you guys. We're going to be digging a little bit more into card evaluation and deck building. Now this is kind of where you get into the meat and potatoes of Versus, you know, instead of just talking about, well, um, what we like, what we don't like, we're going to start getting a little bit into play styles, what informs your deck building decisions, and basically try and help give you guys the tools you need to succeed when you build whatever deck you want to. So what we did whenever we first opened these boxes up was we made a, a single team deck and we just kind of went to our go-to play styles. And I think that that's really a good place to start with Versus. It offers a big array of different play styles, whether you like to play fast aggro decks, combo heavy decks, control decks, mid-range decks. It's got something for everyone. But where you really need to start at is what you want to play and what main character does that best. To kind of kick things off, aggressive decks are normally kind of, I'm not going to say the easiest decks to build, but they're decks that kind of build themselves to a degree. Right. So here's the thing about a fast, aggressive deck. If you're new to a game, it's probably your best thing to play because you either win fast or you lose fast. You have less opportunities to make the mistakes that lose you the late game. So if you're new and you're wanting to learn how something works, I always suggest making an aggro deck. Yeah, and the traditional tenets about aggro decks, how aggro decks are differentiated from the other decks and versus our aggro decks could kind of care less about supporting characters. They're really just after the five to six wounds needed in order to win the game. Right, so you're wanting to close the game fast, and you're wanting to make sure that you don't just get out-flooded by late game drops. And once you look through all of the main characters, and I'm sure you guys have spent some time reading around on Versus HQ and Reddit and whatnot, this should come as no surprise that the best main character to do that with is Storm. She starts out the gate with Flight, so there's not a lot of early drops that can block Flight, so she can always get to the main character. Her Lightning Storm says put two minus one minus one counters divided as you choose on up to two enemy characters so you're weakening their main character making it so you can close it off and then she levels up by using superpowers which you're going to be doing anyways so you're very very often going to have a leveled up level two storm before you enter combat on turn three and then you're likely swinging with the five six flyer and it's just it's a crazy fast deck that just doesn't care about maintaining board control so long as you can always get to their main character yeah, and that's kind of unique in this game. Because the main character has such a large health pool, has such a large vitality pool, um, it kind of makes it so that if you can make, like, if you're building a single weapon, if that weapon is your main character, you're really head and shoulders above a lot of other people, right? Yeah. Storm is kind of selected as the quintessential aggro deck. Now, there are a couple of different other aggro decks that can work. Like, Wolverine tends to lend himself towards a very aggressive deck. Captain America also lends himself to a very aggressive deck as a main character. Yeah, and while they're aggressive, they're aggressive in a different nature. That's what's pretty interesting about changing your main characters. Captain America levels up by team attacking. So where Storm, all of your characters are kind of designed to weaken or help close out that last little bit of damage against the main character, Captain America is designed to flood the board with little guys and team attack in for level ups. So it's kind of a different play style, but it's still an aggressive deck. All right, so um, moving on, we're going to talk a little bit about control decks. 
So uh, control decks, where the point of an aggressive deck is you want to control the tempo and the pace of the game so that they don't really get to turn 6, 7, 8. Uh, you have them stunned out either on turn 4, 5, or even with some of the ones that have 6 vitality, uh, 6. Uh, a control deck is looking to hit the turn more like turn 8, turn 9, turn 10. Now the quintessential control deck, kind of like the archetype of control, I would consider is Loki. Control is characterized by having lots of late game drops, having lots of defensive plot twists, and having the ability to play a stronger late game than other decks. So control is all about having this really high card quality and having enough stuff in there to get to where your high card quality can take over the game. Yeah, another big part of Versus where the main characters and supporting characters are important comes from the plot twists. And plot twists are going to be how you always sway combat to your favor. And Loki's ability, God of Mischief, allows him to play in any combat plot twist from your KO pile and then shuffle it back into your deck. So not only are you recycling out of your KO pile, you're putting it back into your deck. Maybe you draw it a little bit later down the line, and then that's yet another opportunity to play, you know, find cover, metal and fire, any of these plot twists designed to throw your opponent off kilter and kind of sway combat in your favor. And then Loki levels up by playing plot twists. So you're going to be doing that anyways. He's going to get leveled up quickly. You're going to be in really good control of the tempo of the game just by disrupting what it is that they think that they're going to be doing. I would definitely say one of the things that really leans Loki towards control are his enormous stats. I mean, having a 6 on the butt to begin with and then graduating to a 4A, he's at a point where he actually can't stun a lot of level 1 main characters, you know? Yeah. Even when he hits level 2, but he's also at a point where no level 2 character can stun him apart from, like, Groot. And I don't even... I mean, Groot turns into a 7-7, seven, seven, so I mean, mm -hmm. naturally, no level 2 main character can stun Loki. Yeah, so that's kind of an idea of where com where control is at and an idea of where aggressive decks fall. Now we're going to kind of talk about the middle of the road or a mid-range deck. Mid-range decks are very interesting because they require a lot more um, elasticity in your thought process. So <laughs> Right, so a mid-range deck is designed to be able to play up or down into aggro or control. You can set the pace yourself, or you can interrupt the pace that your opponent is trying to throw at you. And it really does require you to play this weird, flexible mindset that, you know, every game isn't going to be played the same. And the quintessential deck that we have to kind of illustrate what a mid-range deck should and could look like is Star-Lord Ramp. So Star-Lord against Loki needs to play very aggressively, or Star-Lord's just going to get totally smacked down by the proliferation of, like, Adam Warlocks and Thanos in the late game. Right, and then if you've got, say, a uh, Star-Lord going up against a Storm deck, uh, Star-Lord needs to be put on the defensive. He needs to be using his ability to help ramp out like a turn four Drax is very possible, and that's going to shut down a flying storm coming over and smacking Star-Lord in the face. Yeah, so with the mid-range decks, definitely the defining characteristic is they can really shift on a dime. And normally mid-range decks are very interested in curving out, whereas the aggro decks, they're fine going off-curve. They're fine going like, okay, yeah, it's turn four, but I just have two two-drops. Or yeah, it's turn five, but I just have a four-drop, and I'm actually not even going to lay a resource this turn. So aggro decks are kind of yeah. comfortable playing in the lower end of the pool, 
and control decks are sometimes okay with, hey, I've got enough powerful plot twists that even though I'm missing three, it's not going to be the death of me. Mid-range decks are really, really interested in curving out there. They're really, really interested in hitting a two-on-two, a three-on-three, et cetera, et cetera. There's two other kind of decks that we need to talk about. One thing that I'd like to point out is there is kind of a combo deck in Versus, and it's kind of sitting somewhere in the nebulous area between combo and control. Typically, combo decks are engine decks, and by engine I mean they're designed to do one thing and do that one thing more effectively than anything else. Versus doesn't really have a deep enough card pool to have a true combo deck, but I would argue that the Thanos main character lends himself to a very combo-oriented playstyle, because the you try and shape the entire infrastructure of the game just so that you can get off the Infinity Gauntlet once or twice. Yeah, Infinity Gauntlet is such a game-breaking level 2 ability. It does require one of every resource. It is the hardest to pull off, but it's also the most devastating. Infinity Gauntlet says for each enemy player, stun their main character, KO one of their resources, KO one of their supporting characters, and they discard their hand. And that usually is happening somewhere around turn 5 or turn 6, where your Lokis are just kind of starting to come online, or your Star Lords are really just starting to set up the control that they've got and then thanos just kind of throws a wrench into that whole plan and says this is my board now this is my card advantage now and there's nothing that you can do about it yes it's it's really kind of devastating to see and the thanos test is kind of like a litmus test if your deck can't at least be able to take one game out of two of thanos after playing about 12 games or so you, you might be needing to tune a little bit to beat it. And then you, you also kind of have to study how it beats you, because sometimes a Thanos deck won't operate like a combo deck. Sometimes they'll have a resource light draw, and they'll end up trying to get Thanos out of stun range by just continually pumping fortresses into him in order to shuffle KO piles and get 1-1 counters. Thanos is definitely an interesting main character to go up against. He uh, he definitely needs to be stunned before you start clearing their board to prevent him from getting XP. And really, to beat a Thanos, you've just got to get him down before he levels up. Because once he levels up, you can't stop that resource drop from coming out, and you likely can't stop the Infinity Gauntlet, and it's really hard to come back from. Yeah, one Infinity Gauntlet can often turn a somewhat losing game into a winning position, and two Infinity Gauntlets, you can come back from the absolute brink of death. So I've actually really started taking a liking to Thanos, and the first few times I played him whenever we were getting into the game, I just kind of felt like I was always losing, and then once I got into it more, I realized that that's the way he's designed to be played. He's designed to make your opponent feel like they're winning, and that they're getting too far out of hand and then just drop an infinity gauntlet and say you know from turn eight forward this is my game now yeah an infinity gauntlet i mean from a design space they could have balanced it a little bit better like they could have made it so that you could only play it during the build phase and if you played it you weren't allowed to play any characters that turn or something like that because the big part of the infinity gauntlet isn't necessarily that it does all those things it's that it does all those things and you still get to recruit so yeah, exactly like, you're destroying their late game and you're destroying their hand and on top of that you're recruiting your late game and that's just such a huge swing you know it's like a turnover in football right like (laughs) you know it just you're not only taking something away but you're giving yourself an opportunity so i i don't know thanos may have been a miss in design and development just because he really defines what you can do late game 
but I wouldn't call him strictly control deck because he's more and more focused on aligning his resources and getting to a point where he can go off with Infinity Gauntlet. Right, and don't get us wrong. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about Infinity Gauntlet and how strong it is. That doesn't mean Thanos can't be beat. Obviously, he can. Thanos didn't win the uh, the Gen Con 10K. Thanos wasn't even in the final. You know, there there are ways around him. We just really wanted to focus on what it is that makes these guys strong and what it is that lends players to lean towards them whenever they're building a deck. And finally, you also have some blends of these decks. So. Like, you can have a control combo deck, which I would kind of consider Thanos there. Like, you can think of him as pure control or pure combo, or you can think of him as kind of a combo control hybrid. Midrange is already kind of a hybrid. It's kind of it's kind of a shifting deck, you know? It can do whatever it needs to do given the matchup. Um, but there's one deck out there that's kind of very interesting, and it's uh, the Hulk deck, because I would consider that a true aggro control style deck, where... For your first four stuns with Hulk, you're actually playing ultra-aggressive. You know, you're hoping to get some mutual stuns in there, but by and large, you're just trying to get Hulk to get some wounds. Right, so Hulk kind of... Hulk really is an interesting deck to play. I mean, the first four turns, pretty much, you're just trying to keep their board at a at a manageable state while getting yourself stunned it's it's a really strange thought process and you want to be making those trades where available but at the end of the day you really don't care about the trades as much as you care about the xp so you're going hyper aggressive you're trying to drop either on curve or multiple guys so that you can get as many attacks out there and keep their board clear for whenever you do get leveled up and then you become this like hyper control deck you're playing super defensive plot twists with think again and earth's mightiest heroes and find cover and you're playing super late game guys that just can't be overwhelmed unless your opponent is dedicating all of their resources to it and once he's leveled up you're either making him big through hulk smash you're gaining card advantage through banner's influence or you're just plowing through everything that they have with your adam warlocks and your thanoses yeah, it's very interesting because it's not a true mid-range deck because it has to be an aggressor early and it has to be a control deck late because Hulk gets so close to dying before he becomes effective, you have to have something in your back pocket like a think again. Otherwise, you're really in danger of losing the game to just somebody saying, oh, I give him a lift, game over. You know, I've got flight now. So <laughs> those are kind of yeah. the different archetypes or kind of like the main categorizations of decks and kind of some examples of those decks. And that's not to say that, you know, we, we tend to list what we think is the best right now, but really we don't understand the full game in its entirety yet. There could be a much better control deck lurking. Um, eventually, I'm sure there'll be some support for some sort of combination deck, like a true combination deck, like build an engine and win by assembling two of every resource, you know, or something like that. So, right. like, I'm sure something like that could be in the works because it adds a lot of interest. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of our ideas for what we've got there. Now that we've talked a little bit about deck styles, let's talk a little bit about main characters and what kind of causes us to see a main character and go, oh, that should be a storm deck, or oh, that should be a green goblin deck. 
let's uh let's kind of talk about what makes the main characters why you think that they're a particular type of deck and let's talk about something that we haven't talked about yet let's talk about uh magneto magneto is a great one to start off with he starts off as a two four ranged flyer he levels up via staying unstunned and his level one capability is give him plus O plus four for the combat. So whenever you're looking at that, you're thinking, okay, Magneto wants to remain unstunned and his ability is defensive. I'm probably going to lean towards a control deck that disrupts what my opponent is that they think that they're doing. So Magneto definitely causes you to lean in that direction because of his stats. Um, when he does level up, he becomes a five, five range flight. And that's uh, kind of balanced. Like, he's going to be able to dominate pretty much most other level 1 char main characters, but he's not going to be able to touch a lot of level 2 main characters. But Flight is an extremely aggressive ability, but Ranged is an extremely defensive ability. I think, all in all, when you take a look at Magneto, if you're playing to his strengths, you're probably going to want to be playing either Control or Midrange. And that's just kind of how he's built. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't build yourself a really aggressive villains deck, maybe splashing Avengers for like Daredevil and Earth's Mightiest Heroes to be used kind of offensively and defensively. You know, that's not to say there isn't a deck like that out there, there isn't a deck like that possible, but I would take a look at that deck and I'd be like, you know, that's really good, but I don't understand what Magneto offers you as your main character in this shell. This might be a better Green Goblin which we still haven't found a good one yet. <laughs> there, there are rumors. I think, I think, I mean, at some point we're going to have to call in medical attention for the dead horse we keep beating. But... <laughs> right. So, Chase, let's say that uh, you and your buddy buy a box of verses and uh, he shuffles up a storm deck and you want to make an aggressive deck too. What are you going to be looking at going through these main characters to make an aggro deck to go against storm? All right, so if... As I would kind of comb through the different main characters, I'd look at something that does a better job than Storm in the early game. And so what I'd be looking for is Storm kind of ends up in this place in the mid-game where Storm's the big character, and every other character is kind of small. And it's very important to have access to either Even the Odds or Doctor Strange to stop like the high-velocity Agent Venom draws and all the various pumps with like X-Factor when Storm does get to Team Attack. Not X-Factor. Um, what's the one that gives plus one, plus one to every Team Tactics or something like that? Oh, Squad Tactics. There we go. So you've got kind of those two. So having an Even the Odds effect is extremely important against that deck. But I'd look at something that can go wider and a little bit bigger. And that right. would lead me towards like more of, like say, a Captain America deck. That would cause me to go towards, okay, if I can level up Captain America deck rather quickly, I can trade pound for pound with Storm and have it be a slugfest. I'm also going to have access to like Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and that deck might actually appreciate a fine cover where most aggro decks wouldn't, simply because Captain America's late-game power snowballs based on how many different supporting characters you have out there. You know, giving a permanent 1-1 to the team is a huge deal, you know, yeah, and being exactly. able to do that two or three turns in a row, Storm's not going to be able to come back from that. That's going to create a snowball effect. Especially whenever you're playing against somebody like Storm, who is just kind of throwing all their cards out on the table on the first five or six turns, both, you know, metaphorically and quite literally, mm -hmm. and then once 
you've got one or two counters across the board, she's either having to dedicate all of her resources to stun one of your players, or she's not going to be able to stun anybody at all. So it's just, you're going to stay in the aggressive mindset, but you want to try and figure out what she doesn't do well and how to abuse that with your also aggressive deck. So that's kind of how you start to build a deck. So you've got your main character selected and you're moving on and you're sh and you're rifling through these cards trying to figure out what it is you want to play. And let's say you're looking at two drops. And whenever I'm looking at two drops, there are three that really stand out to me. We've got Daredevil, who has dodge. He can't be ranged attack. He has Fearless, which says whenever attacking a main character, Daredevil strikes with double his attack. He's a 3-3, three, three, and he only has one health. So that kind of just screams aggro to me. He's not trying to trade to anybody on the board. All he's trying to do is get in there and get an additional stun on the main character whenever you wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. Yeah, he's not interested in supporting character combat at all because you give up too much of it. And supporting character combat often lends to mutual stuns, and because he only has one health, a mutual stun is game over for him. Exactly. So, and then after Daredevil, you've got Black Panther. He has Ferocious, which says during melee combat, he strikes before enemy characters. He's a 3-2, and he has two health. So that says to me that he's kind of looking to maintain board control he's looking to get other supporting characters off the board and if there is one that manages to get a stun back on him he's going to be coming back the next turn because he's got that two health and this is an excellent example of a great mid-range card this card is great both from an aggressive standpoint because with pump he's not going to get stunned back and also from a control standpoint savage surprise on black panther is no joke it's quite savage you might say <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to pull the monocle out in order to say that appropriately. <laughs> and then after Black Panther, you've got Ronan. He's a 3-3 with two health, and his ability set is called Accuse. Name any card, choose an enemy player to reveal their hand, and discard each card with that name. Now, whenever I first opened up the box and looked through it, I saw Ronan, I was like, wow, a 3-3 with two health for two, and he's got a really useful ability, but I don't really know this game yet. I understand that this is a strong character, but he's not strong right out the box. Yeah, I that was know... a big tall glass of nope. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna name the right card. This card's gonna be embarrassing to play with. <laughs> and while sure, I mean he can make trades against Daredevils and come back the next turn and you're not really using them to his full capabilities he's designed to be played in a control deck where one or two things shut you down and you just say you know what i think you might have one of those things in your hand let's go ahead and get them to your ko pile like this hand can beat everything but a turn four saber tooth all right guess what i'm going to be accusing on turn three <laughs> you know like <laughs> exactly so it it, it really once you kind of start to understand the game flow, Ronan becomes a very attractive card for both a control deck and kind of it also fits pretty well in that mid-range flavor. You know, it's really good early, really good late, um, can be very abusable. Right. So what we're trying to get at here is whenever you're building your deck and you think, man, I've got three really good characters here, Black, Black Panther, Daredevil, and Ronan, who do I want to play? That's when you got to look back to your main character. And you've got to look at what type of deck you're trying to play and figure out which one of these supporting characters best slots that role. Yeah, it's it's important to try and narrow it down. And also, it's, it's really important to kind of keep all of your options in mind, you know, because decks can evolve. Like, sometimes the line between, like, a mid-range deck and a control deck is pretty thin, 
you know, so you might find yourself slowly transitioning by swapping out, say, a Ronin for a Black Panther, and then all of a sudden you find that your deck can be a lot more aggressive against the control decks, and so you might have to look at some of your other slots and adjust accordingly. All right, so after you've got your close calls figured out and you've got your main character and your supporting character, what you want to look at next is your resources. And what you want to do here is just kind of lay all the cards out in front of you, figure out what resources you're going to be using the most, and decide do you want to load up on that resource, do you want to take some of your supporting characters out because maybe you're running too many guys that require a fortress or a training ground. How do you want your resource curve to look because it's just as important as your supporting character curve? Yeah, absolutely. Resources, there are a couple different schools of thought on resources, but it's really important that you stick with a coherent resource strategy. And there's a number of different strategies, and we'll kind of go over them. Um, one of the first things that I picked up in the game is that you kind of want to isolate your main character's most important resource. Right. Lightning Storm it requires a lab to use on Storm. Put two minus one minus one counters on up to two players. We've talked about it, right? So as a result, you probably don't want to be using those labs for anything else. For example, Gambit is a three drop who says discard a card and stun a supporting character with casting cost equal to or less than the card you discarded. But it also requires a lab to activate. And you almost never want to be using that lab for anything other than Storm's ability. Yeah, you don't want to try and encourage conflict there. Like, there, that's another reason why, like, for example, Star-Lord doesn't tend to run Nick Fury because they both rely very heavily on the Academy resource. And you don't want to start, like, your main character kind of constitutes your main plan, and you don't necessarily want to create conflicts in there. Now, there are exceptions to this rule. Like, there are many decks that have the uh, training grounds that also run Yondu. Uh, for example, like a Wolverine aggro deck will also run Yondu, because sometimes, while Snicked is important, Yondu to get a Doc Ak out of the way could be far more important that turn. So there are occasions where you want to break the rule, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to have like a total of 10 supporting characters who rely on training grounds plus your main. Right, and then there's another, there's another school of thought here in sharing resource types with your main character. Let's use Hulk for an example. Smash says, use a fortress, put as many plus one, plus one counters on Hulk as you have wounds. So, you know, turn five, turn six, you're going to be adding four or five plus one, plus one counters to Hulk. And while that's all good and well, Adam Warlock is a 13-13 that requires a uh, fortress to activate. So... What you're using Hulk's ability for is to get big and out of control, or you can just play an Adam Warlock who is already bigger and badder than Hulk could plan could hope to be on that turn. And far so, less of a blowout to even the odds, Doctor Strange, etc., etc. Adam Warlock's kind of the safer use of the fortress there. And yeah. it's interesting that you brought that up because there's a key play pattern to be aware of. Let's say you have an Avengers Mansion and a Fortress. Generally, it's right to use the Fortress for Hulk Smash, you know, to just kind of allow him to say, okay, I'll just use the Fortress, because then I've got all four of these different, you know, resource types available to me later in the game. But if you know that you're, the only way you can flip an Adam Warlock in your deck is Fortress, you actually might value that Fortress more than the Avengers Mansion as the game goes longer and longer. And even though you might cut yourself out of, say, like a Banner's Influence later, it might be worth it so that you can recover an Adam Warlock and immediately start transitioning to the offensive. Right. So another way of, like, um, 
kind of resource strategy would be omitting a resource. What this can do is it, it's a really good idea sometimes to just completely cut a certain resource type from your deck. For example, I found that uh, the lab is either extremely high impact or extremely no impact. <laughs> yeah. So, and, I, I mean, really, whenever you're building your resource curve, what you need to look at is what do all of your characters require in order to activate their superpowers? Because the superpowers are what is going to help you win this game. You know, you don't ever want to have a guy on the field and not have a resource available for him to activate his superpower. So if you look at all your guys, you get them all laid out and nobody requires a lab, don't put any labs in your deck. If you've got a two-team deck, say you're running Guardians and Villains, just put in four Nowheres and four of the Vaults if you feel like you need those extra resources to help hit your curve. But don't put in resources just for the sake of having resource points. Yeah, and it, like it goes without saying to some degree, but it's totally okay to face down certain cards, you know, even if they aren't resources. So, but Chase, what if on turn six I need to play that Yondu? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, you just got to realize when a card is powerful and when it's useless. Yondu is really, really good turns one, two, and three whenever your opponent's going to be dropping one, two, and three drops. But whenever you get to turn five, six, and seven, and they're not likely to be dropping those low casting cost supporting characters, Yondu is better suited to be a face-down card in your resource pile than a face-up one-two ranged guy on your board. Absolutely, especially if, you're, especially if you're climbing towards those later drops. And one of the marks that se separates a good player from a great player is a good player knows that Yondu's a good card. And a great player knows that Yondu's one of the best cards you can have in the first three turns. But then after that, his his impact dynamically shifts. Like, he's actually really good late game in response to, like, a backbreaking Cosmo that your opponent has a better board presence and can protect, you know? So it's not like you're out of that neck of the woods, but you have to take a moment to kind of script the game in your head and go, how do I want this to play out? What's my opponent capable of doing stopping as far as stopping me goes? And if that involves having an unmolested Doc Ock for a couple turns or getting a Cosmo in play to take away flight, then all of a sudden Yondu does become a late-game threat because he can counteract those plans. Right, so you just got to kind of read how your opponent plays, what their deck does, and how it wins. And this is something that you're just going to figure out as you play the game more and more. You're going to figure out what deck does what well. Now, so the last thing that... Uh, for the first few games, I didn't even look at as a type of resource is your KO pile. There are cards in this game that use your resource pile, your, use your KO pile, I'm sorry, as a resource. So you've got people like Loki that's buying back plot twists out of their KO pile, or Thanos that's shuffling supporting characters back into decks so that he can get bigger, or Rocket that's just playing grabbing cards out of your KO pile and putting them back into your hand. Yeah, and it's it's important to understand if you're going to be using your KO pile as a resource, that ends up making you perhaps a little bit weaker to cards like Thanos. You know, Rocket may not be as good against Thanos when Thanos can court death and um, immediately get rid of all the characters in your KO pile. So it, it it's very interesting, but you have to kind of know where your deck's going to draw its power from, and some of the decks do get a lot of power from their KO pile, so it's important exactly. to kind of watch that as information. 
Another question that I like to ask myself when I'm building a deck is, do I really care about supporting characters? And if I do, when do I start caring about them? Do I not care about anything under Sabretooth? Do I really only care? Like, do I really only care about sevens and eights? You know, like right. Um, for example, like an an aggressive deck probably doesn't ever want to play Extinguish because by the time the high health dudes come out that you really want to stun and kill with that one time, their main character either should have enough wounds that you can just go for the throat of the main character. Or, or you've, you've probably lost, lost already. Yeah, or yeah. you've lost the game. Like, if you're playing Storm and you're seeing your opponent drop Adam Warlock or drop Thanos, you, you've already lost. That's just not something that you can come back from. So this is like... This is where the decks, what they do well, really needs to come into your play style. And Chase is absolutely right. you got to figure out what... If you care about supporting characters when you care about them, and how it is that you plan on dealing with them if you do care about them. Different cards allow you to deal with them in different ways. If you're playing villain-heavy decks, you can probably run the plot twist Metal and Fire. And then if you're playing against like a team attack Captain America deck, Metal and Fire becomes an absolutely blowout card. They just don't get the, the damage that they need to stun your characters. Or if you're playing a, a control-heavy like Magneto deck, then you deal with supporting characters by just making your defense higher than their attack can possibly be through defensive plot twists and defensive superpowers. And then if you're playing a mid-range like Star-Lord deck, you're dealing with them by putting your threatening supporting characters down before they get theirs down by playing ahead of the curve, or you're dealing with them through the abilities of defensive plot twists, such as even the odds or find cover. Mm -hmm. It's just to do a little bit better than what they're doing and continue to press that advantage. It becomes an incremental snowball effect. You know, you play a three, I play a five. You play a four, I play another five. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and this is all good and well in theory, but keep in mind, this isn't going to happen every game. Randomization does come into this. You are drawing one out of 60 cards every time you pick up a card, and it's not always going to be what you need it to be. So while you might beat Storm nine times out of ten with, say, a Star-Lord, you're not always going to do it. There are going to be times whenever you just can't do what it is that you want to do. But what you're aiming to do is to do it as consistently as possible. And so that kind of gets into our final point. It's something that you want to consider whenever you're building a deck. And that's you need to have an idea of what your plan is. What's your script? You know, I know that when I sit down to play Star-Lord that I'm always going to want a mulligan for Mantis. The deck absolutely hums and is unstoppable when it hits Mantis on two. And when it doesn't, it plays a, it plays a pretty good imitation of a fair deck, but it just... It doesn't have that same oomph as the Mantis draws. That informs my mulligan decisions, and then I know that Star-Lord's really interested in skipping three based off of that. So if I see an opening hand with, like, say, a Mantis and a Sabretooth, I'm going to be grinning ear to ear. <laughs> you know, right. because no matter what, it looks like I should be able to hit my four drop on turn three, either through KOing Mantis or through Star-Lord's ability. The script for Star-Lord is turn one, Yondu against an aggressive deck, or nothing against any other style deck. I'll often hold Yondu for later in the game. And then turn two, I want Mantis. Pretty much every matchup, every time. Turn three, I always want to drop Sabretooth. 
turn four, I'm okay going back to turn three to drop something like, say, a Doc Ock or a Gamora, you know, something. It's okay for me to play Undercurve at that point because at this point, either they're spending all their resources dealing with Sabretooth or Sabretooth spiraling out of control. And then I want to skip five, go directly to six. I want to go Drax or Magneto early. And that's kind of the script. That's what Star-Lord wants to do every game. If Star-Lord can do that every game, he's going to be a happy camper. Right. And then you've got to think about, okay, how do I win if I can't stay by my script? So if I'm playing Thanos, the script is KO Dudes, Infinity Gauntlet. But maybe my deck is just thinking, you know what? You just don't need a training grounds this time. you got to figure out how to win without using Infinity Gauntlet. And you've got to always kind of have a backup plan. And Thanos does have that. He is a pseudo-ramp deck. He does run Mantis. It is possible to get ahead of the curve with him. He does have his ability, Court Death, that lets him get plus one, plus one counters and get out of control. So you've always got to kind of have this fallback plan B that while it may not be optimal, it's still going to get you out of sticky situations whenever the RNG gods just decide that you don't need to have the cards that you want yeah and obviously and what this kind of leads to is sometimes you're looking for some flexibility in your cards sometimes you're looking for cards that can excel at playing catch up and sometimes you're looking for cards that can excel at allowing you to kind of press the advantage so to speak right so while for example Adam Warlock is a beater. You know, he's a 13-13 with fly. It's almost never wrong to play him. There's times when you don't necessarily need a beater on the board. You need someone with a decent amount of health in it, with a attack and defense that also gives you some flexibility, like, say, an Iron Man, to flip a resource back over to maybe give you the ability to court death again to turn Thanos into your beater. Now you've got, you know, a big Thanos on the board, and you've got a ranged flight Iron Man, whereas if you would have just dropped the Warlock, then you would have just had a beater and that's it. The key thing to remember when it comes to scripts are know what your ideal play is and know how your deck handles when you can't drop your ideal play. You'll actually see this built into curves where you see decks that often run five four drops and normally it's going to be four of one four drops, so it'd be like four Spider-Man, but just in case I don't hit Spider-Man, I've got a single Sabertooth. Right. You know, so you'll see that. You'll often see written into the deck list what the plan is. Like, they've got a four of that character. They always want to hit that character. But they've got a couple other four drops, so those must be the backup plans. Those must be <laughs> the good enough guys. Hey, you weren't f- first picked on our team, but you definitely weren't last picked. You can come play kickball with us. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you need to have a little bit of depth at your uh, running back charts, so to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, you know, that's our uh, that's our deck tech breakdown for this week. We really want to thank everyone that's been listening in. You know, we've been getting uh, a lot of likes, a lot of listens, more than we thought that we would at this point. We really appreciate everyone supporting us, supporting this game, and supporting the community. Guys, I know everywhere I look out there, it's just people wanting to find more people to play, and this is how we do it, by getting out there forming a community, spreading the word, and getting people into this game. And we really appreciate you guys for listening in on us. Yeah, jump on Reddit, jump on Versus HQ, reach out, you know, throw up something on your local flagpole, talk to your local stores. The more we play, the more great people will suck into this wonderful game, and the more people support it, the easier it is for Upper Deck to support it moving forward. So if you guys want to continue reaching out to us, 
You can always reply to any of the threads that we post in. It's always a great idea to reach us at Gmail, where we're versus vs labs labs podcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at the same handle versus labs podcast. And we're also on Facebook at, you guessed it, Versus Labs Podcast. Again, guys, thanks so much for listening in. I'm Michael. I'm Chase. And this has been Versus Labs.